People of Note on Fine Music Radio is proudly brought to you each week at this time by Peter Turin Productions. This is Rodney Trudgeon welcoming you to another edition of People of Note here on Fine Music Radio. Now, listen to this. In 1973, the pianist Robert Sutherland was invited to help Maria Callas prepare for her much-heralded comeback tour. Little did he then imagine that he would stay until shortly before her death, traveling with her for 15 tempestuous months and afterwards working with her in the studio. He was to come to know this most complex of women, both as Cullis, La Diva, the Tigress of the Opera World, and as Maria, a vulnerable and much-valued friend. And Robert Sutherland is with me in the studio here on holiday in Cape Town. Robert's. Welcome. It's a great, great pleasure and honor to have you with us here at FMR. Thank you very much. Um, Robert, just before we talk about Maria Callas, tell me a little bit about your background. You were trained as a pianist, but you chose not to go the concert pianist route. You chose to go the accompanying route. Yes, uh, I wasn't very interested in being a soloist, although they were encouraged me to do so. Uh, I preferred to make music with other people. And at the beginning of my career, I had a duo with a violinist, a, a trio, and I always was interested in singing and poetry, you know, songs in particular, and gradually, it's the way of the world goes, I got more and more engagements with singers, and then eventually most of my life was spent accompanying singers. Okay. But I never took a job as a repetiteur, I wanted to perform on platform rather than help singers backstage, you know. Not bashing, it's a quality. But um, I gather from what I've read about you and the book, because you've published a book which we'll come to, which I just want to tell our listeners about now, called Maria Callas, Diaries of a Friendship, of this tour that you did with her, this, which some people call an infamous tour, so I'm dying to hear your stories of that tour. But um, you, you've, you've done a lot of um, accompanying people uh, even at exam level, but also of training voices or telling them how to sing and breathe. Well, of course, I studied singing also when oh, I was Oh, did you? I didn't yes. know that. Oh. And uh, what with that and also playing for singing teachers, one learns a lot. Mm -hmm. Some of it doubtful <laughs> information. <laughs> Teaching singing is a very difficult job. It's very difficult for a young singer to find the right teacher. And they're lucky if they do it at the beginning of their careers. And there, as we know, are some spectacular success stories as a result of finding the right teacher. Absolutely, yeah. Um, apart from Maria Callas, did you work with a number of other big names as well? I worked with uh, a number of famous names, Caballé, Kirit Kanawa, Carreras, and people like that. And I remember I was once asked to take part in preparation for a recording of Salome, and Eric Leinstorff, the conductor, said, look here, we've got a young tenor, and you know what tenors are like? Take him aside and make sure he knows his notes. So for five days, this young tenor came to my studio, and I gave him a rough time. <laughs> <laughs> and he was a very nice boy, very modest. And um, I discovered later on his name was Placido Domingo. Good grace. He <laughs> <laughs> became rather famous. Yes, famous. he did, yeah. I also worked with other singers, you know, like Agnes Baltzer. Kiriti Kanawa. 
Did you ever meet or work with that great tenor, Luciano Pavarotti? Well, I met him and I knew him. Uh, I never actually worked with him. But uh, I remember once I had to go during an interval to see him. And he was in his uh, underwear in the dressing room. And the astonishing thing was he was just as big as in his underwear as he was in his costume. (laughs) (laughs) And memories of fondness of these people that you've worked with? Because we know the greater the diva sometime or the maestro, the more humble they are sometimes. Yes, well, Kiri, of course, is a lovely girl. She always made something special when I went for a rehearsal. It would be a special cake made or something. Very homely girl. Very nice. It's sometimes very difficult to get it to work. She yes. tended to be a bit uh, lazy, I suppose one could say. <laughs> I remember, and of course the voice was so gorgeous, you know, it was wonderful to work with. And she was working in an area which had a very, very high sea. And uh, I said, come on, we must do this work. He said, oh, all right. And she did it beautifully. And they said, oh, but it's so difficult. I said, yes, I know, all, everything's difficult. If you want to achieve something, there's always a, a difficulty, and that's what you have to overcome. But she's, she's a wonderful woman. And did your career as a pianist then, so you didn't do any solo recital work, your career was entirely as an accompanist? Uh, Yes, I did play some uh, recitals, and in in the early days, uh, very often uh, organisers of concerts, singing programmes, expected the accompanist to play a few solo pieces. But I didn't like that, actually, because uh, it's quite a change in mentality. It's quite a change in your mental attitude. You're working with somebody, and then you're alone. And somehow or other, I find it very tiresome, <laughs> you know, to be mixed up like that. Yes, I wanted to know I was going to do one job as an accompanist or another job as a solo pianist. And clearly the accompanist suited you temperamentally, as you said. Yes, I, like, I prefer to make music with other people. Because of the love of the voice, and did you say poetry as well? Uh, yes. And I see, Robert, we're going to take a music break now. Daniel Barenboim, a piano piece coming up first. So tell me why you've chosen this Liebestraum by Liszt. Yeah, uh, I admire this pianist very much. He's a wonderful guy. Have he's you met him? Conductor as well. Yes, I have, actually, a number of times. And you hear such a wonderful control of the piano. And you can hear in this piece how uh, he allows the weight of his arm to go through his fingers into the keys, which produces a beautiful singing tone. And then in the arpeggio accompaniment, he just feathers the keys with the pads of his fingers. And gets that, this is what we call color in piano playing, you know. And it's what makes a pianist playing interesting. Well, let's guide us now to listen to this piece even more carefully. Here's Daniel Barenboim.
Well, attentive listening there would have um, reminded us what you said, Robert. Daniel Barenboim playing Liebestraum by List, the A-flat Liebestraum. And the first choice of my guests on People of Note this week, Robert Sutherland, whose book, Maria Cullis, Diaries of a Friendship, inspired me to invite you in, Robert, and also because you're here in Cape Town. And um, I want to find out about this lady now. First of all, how did you become involved in such a world-famous event as this final tour with Cullis turned out to be? I knew a famous accompanist called Ivor Newton, who had played with uh, Giuseppe Di Stefano for many years. Di Stefano persuaded Maria to do this tour. She, of course, had separated from Onassis and was looking for something to do in her life. And so he persuaded her to do a tour with piano, rather, normally Callas, of course, would sing with orchestra. Uh, but the advantage of singing with piano alone is that you can change the program at a moment's notice and you can also transpose the music, uh, which you couldn't do with an orchestra, you see. And she agreed to that. Ivor was 80 and uh, had had three heart attacks and the insurer said, you can't have someone like that without a backup. Uh, you must engage a younger man who couldn't take. I used to say to me, when Callis is on a high note and I have my heart attack, just push me off the stool and, and <laughs> take my place. Well, I mean, can you imagine what the newspapers would have made of that? Yes. Callis carries on singing while I have a couple of dies. <laughs> anyway, that never happened, fortunately. But then gradually, uh, Ivor was absolutely charming. He was a wonderful company to be with, but he played in a very old-fashioned manner. He had played for all the great singers in the past, and Maria didn't like his playing, and because I had, in fact, done all the rehearsing, I was never, he was, either couldn't be bothered to come or whatever, I did all the rehearsing with Maria and De Stefano, and each day I phoned him and reported, but all he was interested in what Maria was eating and what she was wearing, which she was passing on to the newspapers. <laughs> uh, Who was he indeed? Yeah. But uh, when the tour started, it was clear that uh, with all the travelling and so on, he wouldn't be able to do it. So eventually I took over. But did Maria Callas not want to sort of audition you first, or how did she... Well, that's what's what was so nice about working in the field. You don't... You seldom get auditioned. You have your reputation, and... Uh, and uh, I don't know if Maria knew this, but... Uh, what the, one of the reasons why Ivan invited me was that I had just played a winterizer in the, in the Wigmore Hall and I got very nice notices and he wrote to me to say oh, congratulations and so on and also said please come and have a drink with me I have a, an unusual proposition and I knew that uh, De Stefano had recently sung a recital and, I, and the word had been that Carlos had been around and I, I'm very curious to know <laughs> if perhaps Carlos was involved. Of course she was. Had you not met her at that stage? I hadn't, no. Okay. <laughs> How did it, tell me about the very first time you met her, said eyes on her in real life, off we, the stage. We went to, uh, we were, Ivor was in Paris and said, uh, told me I, he was, I wasn't needed. Uh, so I went away for a weekend and when I came back there were lots of messages from Ivor. You see he didn't know all the duets and things but he knew all the arias, could play them magnificently but it was all new music to him and also they were rehearsing twice a day and he was 80 
So he said, come at once. So I went over, and uh, he said to me, I remember on the way to Maria's apartment, he said, now you'll find Maria very nice and very charming, but be careful with the Stefano. Uh, he can lose his temper, and when he does, just remember that he's a Sicilian peasant. <laughs> uh, he was born in Sicily. Mm -hmm. And then we went to the apartment, and uh, Iva let me play. Was this the famous Paris apartment? Yes, Georges Mondel. Mondel. Mm -hmm. And um, we had done uh, just, uh, I think, two numbers, and then suddenly Maria appeared with a hat. And Iva said, oh, the, Paris is so warm, you know. And she said, yes, it's too warm. We're going. The staff says, yeah, we're going. And I said, well, where, when are you going? He said, now. We're waiting for the car. So literally I met her for about an hour, and then they were away. And she asked me to leave my telephone numbers. And a week later she phoned me and asked me to come and rehearse with her. Were you nervous, intimidated at meeting the great No, Lada I wasn't curious enough. Uh, I, I was, of course, I was... Uh, excited by the idea and apprehensive uh, a friend of mine gave me a very good piece of advice he said you play the music the way you want it to go which I did and we never had any trouble we, we never actually rehearsed with Maria you see we were, all the work was done uh, was to help her to regain her technique she was working on that in fact she started the tour too early she, she should have taken more time in preparation. Just remind me, Robert, because my memory is not so good with Maria Callas in those last period. Why had she lost her technique? Had she not been singing for a long time? Well, she got involved with a man called Onassis. Oh, yes, and that <laughs> took her away from... The and he wasn't interested in music. I mean, he was so... She told me a story that he said to her one day. She was on her way to London to sing at Covent Garden, where people had slept... In, in sleeping bags overnight hoping for tickets and he said to her why do you bother singing I've got plenty of money he had no idea the needs of an artist yes. especially that uh, who had reached that stage in her career an artist needs to perform so does was it then a period where she simply didn't sing she simply didn't keep well it's sort of practicing her operatic appearances sort of frittered out yes and of course then she wasn't practicing and when you heard her voice live in the flat in paris what did it sound like well actually i was so thrilled <laughs> i was so thrilled to be playing you know and uh and what the most surprising thing happened when we finished and I was she took a few moments to recover she always did, she was so involved you know with the character she was saying she couldn't just stop and that was it uh, if, you see, if you watch any of the films uh, of our Tokyo tour, the Japanese tour you'll see that she takes some time to come out of the character before acknowledging the applause and I was, was, was trembling with excitement. It was so, such a wonderful experience. And then she turned to me and said, uh, was that all right? <laughs> you know, I was going to say, would you like a cup of tea? And uh, I was astonished. <laughs> sort of managed to murmur some encouraging words, you know. Um, we're going to go now for some more music, just away from Maria Callas for the moment, but to the soprano here in South Africa, of whom we are so proud, Virginia Oosthuizen, and you've brought one of her CDs with you. And yes. Tell me what and why. Well, this is a beautiful performance of the famous aria from 
the Mary Widow. I've seen recently a video of her doing it. The video wasn't very good quality, but her performance, I mean, she really was a prima donna in that, you know. In each scene, you could see who was the prima. <laughs> I so uh, remember that, yes. And uh, I would like to hear her singing the Villa, the famous aria. Let's welcome Virginia Oosthuizen. There's a lovely reminder of the beautiful voice of Virginia Oosthuizen in the Velia song from The Merry Widow by Franz Leha. And one of the choices of my guest on People of Note on Fine Music Radio today, Robert Sutherland, the man who accompanied Maria Cullis on her 
final tour along with Giuseppe Di Stefano. Robert, I want to go back to Colors just for the moment because it's a unique opportunity to have in the studio someone who's worked so closely with her. And in the course of the build-up to these concerts and in the process of these concerts and in the parts of the, your book I've read, there were times where her vulnerable side came out very, very clearly to you. There's a lovely story you tell about her weeping on your shoulder. Yes, that actually was one of the events that brought us very close together. We had been working alone for some weeks, and it was absolutely fabulous for me. It was so exciting. Twice a day we met, morning and evening. And then one morning she phoned me and said, with a very, very sad voice, there won't be any work today. And I said, well, of course, I, I still was in the situation where I respected her very much as... Uh, and I didn't, wasn't quite sure whether I should step over and make a personal gesture. I said to her, would you like me to come round anyway? And she jumped on the idea. And then I find myself sitting on a sofa with Maria Callas weeping on my shoulder. It had been a bad night for her. She had heard some news that upset her very much. It was to do with the famous callas Tibaldi feud which had been going on and been for many years, and most of it was fictitious and was reported in all the popular press and so on, you know, always in an exaggerated way. By that time, actually, she and Tibaldi had made it up. They were friends again. But what had upset her was that her own agent was putting on Tibaldi with another tenor a week after our concert in London, uh, singing the same sort of program as ours and that you know all that for box office really and her own manager arranged that yes her own manager Gorinsky and she was very very upset about that and she said she was so tired of being used well she was used all her life you know and uh, so she got into a bit of a rage and uh, and, and she said to me uh, I know I'd I'll just change my agent. Well, I thought, could she find an agent who would offer her the loyalty she expected? And I said quite innocently, do you know another agent? (laughs) Well, Maria pulled herself off my shoulder and sat up. She seemed to grow about two feet. And she said, for Carlos! (laughs) And that was the first time I realized I was dealing with two personalities. There was Maria Kalajaropoulos, a rather demure, quite innocent, well-brought-up girl, or I should say strictly brought-up girl, and the operatic diva known as La Callas, also nicknamed the Tigress. Mm. And I saw that for a moment, and then I realized that uh, in the future, I thought to make sure I knew which one I was talking to. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. But Robert, you said when we were um, just talking about this interview, you said you were going to tell me a story about Maria's birth, something rather curious about Maria's birth. Well, because she came from a very superstitious background. Her mother was a frustrated actress, and she had had a daughter, Jackie, who grew up to be a charming girl, and then a son who died in infancy, and she wanted another boy. She was a very dominant woman, decided 
that she couldn't take chances, so she sent her husband to an astrologer to find out the exact day and time when they should make love so that a boy would be born. Then when she was five months pregnant, they emigrated to New York and eventually she was taken to hospital to be delivered of her boy, the boy she so eagerly expected. Well, it was a girl. And for four days, she refused to hold the baby in her arms. And Maria grew up sensing that she was an unwanted child. Did it continue then? Did oh, well... Continue through her childhood? Yes. Uh, she had a very, very difficult relationship with her mother. When she was about three or four, she started to show her talents and started to sing. And uh, I think the mother thought she had the answer to her own dreams. You know, her child would fulfil her, her ambitions on the theatre. Actually, Maria said she wanted, she thought she had, uh, she wanted me to be another Diana Durbin or. Mm, those light singers, uh, yes, yeah, the jazz singers. Who made so much money then. And <laughs> Maria saying to me, but I worked like a boy and made something of my life. Mm. She was famous, wasn't she, for working extremely hard. She was yes. an absolute perfectionist, wasn't she? Oh, a perfectionist, she? yes. That's really what caused so much trouble. You know, people say she was so difficult to be with and so on. But if you did your job well, she was fine. Were you able to tell her things about her singing? Would you say, uh, why, uh, let's do a bit of rubato here, or I think you should take that in one breath, or why didn't you breathe here? Were you ever able to do that sort of thing to her? But those particular things I never needed to tell her, but I did gain her confidence. Um, it was before the American part of the tour, and for a little while I was wondering, because there had been a lot of stress with Di Stefano, if I really wanted to be to continue being in this group, you know. Of course, that passed very quickly. <laughs> I certainly wanted to be with Carlos. But I thought, um, you know, having been a singer myself and listened to other teaching, uh, other teachers teaching singing, I could see that there were things she was doing that could be uh, answered, could be corrected very easily. And at the time, we were very often using the recording machine so very often she would turn to me afterwards and say, was that all right? And I took the opportunity of saying, well, I don't know if you're always doing what you think you're doing. Well, Maria pulled herself up to her full height <laughs> and looked at me. There was a strange sort of air at that time. And I said, why don't we do it again and we'll turn the recorder on? So three or four times during that, I interrupted her and made a suggestion. And then when it finished, we were both feeling a little bit uneasy. And uh, she said, are you staying to dinner? And I said, no, I think this evening you should dine alone and listen to this recording. Now, first I must tell you that it wasn't always easy to get Maria to the piano. I would turn up at 10, she would appear at 11, and we were lucky if we started work at 12. <laughs> that next morning... I went in, into the lift and I could hear her singing at 10 o'clock. Good grief. And when I went in, she was sitting at the piano. She wore enormous glasses and she looked over the glasses at me. And she pointed at me with the long, famous Medea finger. And I thought, oh dear, Robert, home for you. <laughs> and she said, you were right. 
And from that moment on, I was able to coach her. I never said I coached Carlos, but now they say I did. I just encouraged her and pointed out what she was doing and how she could adjust it slightly and mm -hmm. so on. Uh, and that brought us a lot closer too, you know. So eventually we were very close. How long was the tour, Robert, this famous last tour, as they called it well, the infamous world tour? Yeah, well, I'm sorry they call it the infamous world tour, but um, it was infamous, I suppose, in one sense that Callas was not the old Callas. She had this extraordinary feeling for the theatre, you know, and if, if anything went wrong vocally, she could always do something, you know. I remember one, one occasion, she was singing an aria which had a high A. A high A is not very high, actually, for a soprano, but it was a bad note in her voice. And she was going for it. It was a big exclamation of despair. And she was going for it, and I could feel that she was tensing up. And she knew, and I knew, that it wasn't going to be good. Well, it was a dreadful note, and I had this wonderful Steinway piano, and I was playing fortissimo all the way from my shoulders to try to cover it. <laughs> but she knew she wasn't going to do it. So in a wonderful theatrical gesture, vocally, she brought the voice, she carried it in the portament all the way down an octave and a half to the bottom, and it was like uh, what I imagine a great... Uh, Greek tragedy, the sort of sound one might expect to hear in a Euripides play or something, you know. And my hands were trembling and the audience exploded. But you see, she didn't sing it well, but she made a fabulous performance of it. Mm -hmm. All those concerts, although people criticised her singing, were marvellous occasions, uh, theatrical occasions. You know, it was great. Mm -hmm. Okay, we'll come back to the tour in a moment, Robert. Robert Sutherland, my guest. Um, but I'm intrigued by your next piece of music here because it's the Slavonic dance by Dvořák. And why have you chosen this amongst all the vocal world we're in? I've always wondered what is it that a human being can create music. An artist paints a picture and he always has a subject. What does a composer do? Where does it come from? It's magical. And some composers were better at writing good tunes than others. Dvořák wrote wonderful tunes. And the marvellous thing about his music is he'll have a marvellous tune on top and inside the accompaniment and so on there are wonderful little melodic things happening. Mm -hmm. uh, and this is a favourite one of mine. It's very, very, it starts in a very virile way and then there's a very sensuous centre part where you can imagine the girls are dancing and then gradually the music gets more and more excited and of course all his music is easy to listen to. Mm -hmm. But it's great music isn't it? Oh yes. It's, yes. it's got an incredible freshness and originality as Absolutely.
they're always fun to hear, those Slavonic dances by Dvorak. And that one, the choice of my guest, Robert Sutherland, who, as you know now, if you've been listening here to People of Note on Fine Music Radio, was the pianist who accompanied Maria Callas and Giuseppe Di Stefano on her final tour, or her world tour, uh, just a few years before she died. How long, in fact, was that tour, Robert? Well, it was spread over two years, of course, with breaks. Mm -hmm. We went to all the main cities in Europe and then to America, the States, and Canada. And then we went to the Far East, Korea, and Japan. And it was an event-filled tour in many ways, wasn't it? Oh, yes, you can say that again. <laughs> I mean, I, we could talk all night if I got you going on anecdotes, <laughs> but I'm sure we'd love to hear some from some of the cities that might just spring to mind suddenly that you think, well... Gosh, I remember that one evening in Japan or that one evening in... Well, uh, there are a lot of those sort of things. Uh, and I remember very much one of the concerts in London, which happened to be, coincidentally, on Maria's birthday. And I remember that the audience sang Happy Birthday. And it was absolutely overwhelming. The whole audience was singing and Maria stood there statuesque, beautiful and I thought alone and tears running down her eyes Oh really? I've never forgotten that that was really that's not a musical memory but no. it was a very important one mm -hmm. Another time um, we often sang the duet from Cavalleria Rusticana and Di Stefano and Maria, who were having an affair, and were both Mediterranean types, <laughs> and were both prima donna, <laughs> prima donna, prima donna, uh, they didn't get on very well, really. There was always rows, and on this particular day, they'd been had absolutely horrendous row. In fact, we didn't think the concert was going to take place. But when it came to this very, very dramatic duet, um, it wasn't any longer... Turido arguing with Santuzza, it was Callas arguing with Di Stefano. Mm -hmm. And I always remember our tour manager telling backstage they were, uh, uh, they were laughing and people couldn't understand why they were laughing, but it was because the whole thing was being done for, for real. But it was so intense and um, again, my fingers were trembling, you know, with the excitement they had created. And the audience went wild at the end. I'm sure. But was the um, fighting between Callas and Di Stefano exaggerated? Was Di Stefano's character as a bit of a bully and a bit of a peasant exaggerated, or was he really difficult? He wasn't an easy man to be with. He could be absolutely charming and very kind, but he could switch very easily into being very, very difficult. Gosh, you and had to read two quite different characters in both of them, didn't you? Yes, again. The tour. But, uh, no, he, you see, he had troubles. Uh, firstly, his voice was going, and to my absolute shock, I, I remember once his agent was there, Galinsky, and said to him, no one wants you anymore oh because you're unreliable, which is true. He, he would cancel at, at a whim. Um, Ivor told me he cancelled the concert in Berlin once, and then went out with all his Italian friends to a prominent Italian restaurant where he was sure to be seen, you oh, know. Gosh. Well, that wasn't the sort of thing one did. No. 
at, um, but he's the voices were so beautifully matched. I mean, one oh, only judges from recordings. Oh, but wonderful. that that uh, Tosca the Rigoletto, oh, the 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 blend of their style of singing and the timbre of their voices was so oh so wonderful. Record. And he his voice was so luxurious and and so masculine mm. and so sexy, uh, and he had this passion. Um, I, I admired him greatly. I learned that recording lying on a, the shores of a Greek island in the sun, listening to... And the marvellous thing about that recording is it's not just Gobi, Kalas and Di Stefano, but also Di Sabata with that fabulous orchestral playing. Mm. No wonder it's the most famous Tosca. It is. It's extraordinary. And you had the glory or the experience of a lifetime listening to those two sounds together, even though, as you say, both voices were well past their Yes. Best. They, of course, reacted very well together. They knew one another so well, you know. Yes, and you also said, I think, somewhere in your book, when you were talking about De Stefano's voice, that he didn't really have any formal training, did he? Just was had this lovely gift that just worked. Well, he did have a teacher. I mean, he never talked very much about his early days, even in the army and things like that. And he used to make re recordings of popular songs under another name. Um, and then, of course, it wasn't very long before he was discovered. But he he had the kind of voice that didn't really need a, a tremendous technical uh, teaching. He needed more encouragement and sort of shuffling in the correct direction, yes, you know. Yes. Whereas Callas worked very very hard on technique. You know, she she always said, you know, a singer should be like a pianist or a violinist, learning all the arpeggios and scales. And so a friend of mine whose musical. Um, knowledge I hugely admire once said to me years ago that he thought Cullis, and he wasn't an opera lover was one of the greatest musicians oh, of the 20th century absolutely because so yeah. often you don't think of a singer as being a musician exactly. curiously no. no this is what people don't seem to know Callas was a fabulous musician and I've heard her at the risk of exposing her weaknesses continue on a phrase for the music's sake you know, she used to say, uh, when you're learning a piece of music, you must learn it strictly, exactly as the composer wrote it. And then you know how to use rubato and so on, you know. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you listen to her recordings with the score, you see she sings everything exactly as the composer wrote it. And she really enjoyed working with De Sabata and also Tullio Serafin, yes. whom, for whom she seemed to have a huge respect. Oh, yes. And he was able to feel the kind of fluidity and flexibility and strength in her voice with well in that sense conducting. yeah he knew her voice better than she did in fact because he had worked with many of the greatest singers before Carlos and she took a lot of advice from him I don't know if you want me to tell you the story of the famous Brunhilde Elder. yes please do she was singing Brunhilde he had asked Seraphin had asked her to sing Brunhilde in Venice and also on the program was uh, I Puritani. Uh, the soprano became ill, and uh, Seraphin asked Carlos to sing the role of Elvira. Well, this difference, I mean, the difference between Brunhilde and Elvira mm. is tremendous, not only style, but vocal technique. And uh, Maria used to be always laugh when she told me the story of people in the box office having fights because the, the Italians were saying she can't possibly sing Elvira. So, so she did agree she said to me if Seraphin 
thought I could do it, I would do it. Another thing she said that was very interesting, you see, in those days, I had no nerves. It was only when I became famous, and then people expected so much of me, that I became nervous. Mm -hmm. But to go back to that story about the Brunhilde, so there was a period when Seraphim was during the day at the piano coaching her as Elvira, and in the evening was on the podium conducting her as Brunhilde. Well, after her first Elvira, when the news spread through Italy, the opera lovers were agog, astonishment. And it wasn't just that she had managed to sing, but you see, these people had, were used to hearing that role sung by light color or two sopranos who were content with flexibility, beauty of tone. But Carlos seemed to open up a new world to them, you know. She filled the music with an intensity and a meaning that they had never heard before. But she wasn't essentially a Wagnerian singer. I have a recording of her singing Isolde's Liebestod, which yeah. actually is very, very impressive. Oh, yes, sings it in Italian. Yes. I remember thinking when I had that recording first, I thought, oh, he's old as a woman. <laughs> oh, <yes. laughs> Don't be rude about Nilsson now. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, you see, I think when I sing it as young, they're keen to get engagements, and if they can do the part, then, you know, they take the part. Mm-hmm. And so, Robert, in your life, you saw a side of Maria that a lot of us would never have seen. You've seen the vulnerable side. You've seen the fighting side. And what has struck me is a few times you've said she was lonely. You got the impression that she was lonely. Did she, was she ever in love? I think she was always in love with Onassis. Really? Yeah. He, that's why when he, after he died, Maria just gave up. It was very difficult to talk to her after Onassis died. I remember we, he became seriously ill and was taken into hospital while we were in Tokyo. And Maria said to me, I can't even send him a telegram or phone him because the media will get to know about it. Mm. And she respected Jackie Onassis's part as, as the wife, you see. She, in her old-fashioned Greek way, she must inter- intervene between the two of them. You know. So there was pain there, obviously, right till the end of her Oh, life. absolutely. She told me a lovely story. After uh, Onassis married Jackie Kennedy, some days afterwards, actually, she heard his little secret whistle under her bedroom window, and she ignored it. So he went to a local tobacco and phoned her and said, you must let me in, otherwise I'll phone the paparazzi. She said, go away, I don't go with married men. <laughs> well, of course, she wasn't the one to say that because he was married when she started with him. <laughs> exactly. But anyway, it was quite funny how she told me that story. But then they became friends again and remained friends until he died. And then, Robert, just getting back to her professional life and this tour, this extraordinary tour with all the tension with Giuseppe Di Stefano and herself and all that, how, and we heard about Tibaldi and how the media sensationalizes things. Generally speaking, in all the places when, how did she get on with other singers? Well, I'd find her in the tour, of course, we had only one singer and me, a pianist. Uh, there was always, a, she had a wonderful feel for the right music, the right time to do something in the program. When we came on, she was surrounded by two men in full tails and everyone saw Maria Callas and then they discovered there was a tenor there and gradually they found out also there was a pianist there 
And there was always a moment in the programme when she would acknowledge me in a special way. She always got me up after each item. Uh, I remember uh, once when Di Stefano was introducing the Cavalleria Rusticana duet, and he told the story and pointed to Maria and said, Santuzza, Greece, and then pointed to himself and said, Turidu, Italy. And there was a wonderful reception. And when it calmed down, Maria swung her arm round to me at the piano and said, and Scotland. <laughs> really, did she? Yeah. I mean, she, she was very thoughtful sometimes. Did yeah. she have a sense of humour? No. <laughs> really? She had a wonderfully... When she was switched on as callous, she had a wonderfully alert mind, and she could see her situation very clearly. And very often she made some very... She made remarks that sounded very funny, but it wasn't her wit, it was just a fact, you know. When you heard that she died, were you very upset? As though you'd lost yeah, of a special I was friend? Upset, but it wasn't unexpected, actually. Mm. I had been, a couple of days before, I'd been talking to her on the phone, and she was very, very negative. It, was, it became very difficult to talk to her because everything was swept aside. She didn't like this, she didn't like that. She said, well, I, I hate Jews and I hate homosexuals. And I said, but Maria, through most of your career, you've been helped by people who are Jewish or homosexual, or sometimes both. And she said, <laughs> she said but they were my friends. <laughs> so there was a bit of humor shining through there. And then she died a few days later. Yes. And she was very lonely again, wasn't she? That Absolutely lonely, yeah. And she died in her flat, did she? Yes, she did, yeah. She got up one morning. She had been complaining of pains in her back. And Ferruccio told me she got up and went to the toilet and collapsed before the bathroom. And they put her back into bed and um, he went to fetch some coffee. And when he returned, she wasn't with us anymore. Because there were lots of, the newspapers were full of scandalous reports of her death, and it just seemed that no one was content to allow her to have a natural death, you know. Mm -hmm. Having been callous, she had to have something extraordinary, you know, she had to be stabbed to death or was poisoned or committed suicide and all that. She did, certainly did not commit suicide. I know that for a fact. Robert, it's been extraordinary speaking to you, Robert Sutherland, and thank you for sharing those intimate moments as well with us about your association with the great La Divina Maria Callas. But I'm intrigued now, you've asked and you've kept it as a surprise to the end, what to play, where we hear the voice. Oh, uh, well, there's a recording that's very dear to me, which is taken from a televised concert we gave in Tokyo. Uh, the encore was O Mia Babino Caro, and of course I'm playing, and... Uh, I would like to hear that. We're going to do it with pleasure because thank you for coming into the studio. It's been my pleasure. Robert Sutherland and his book, Maria Callas, Diaries of a Friendship, I'm sure you'll be able to get from Amazon or somewhere.
People of Note on Fine Music Radio was proudly brought to you by Peter Turin Productions. Music